a few years ago, I was um, on staff at a church where there were a few pastors there. Uh, I was going through Bible college at the time, uh, which meant that when we got big pastoral phone calls come in, someone called up and say, hey, this is happening in my life, I would often go along to these meetings as an observer. Uh, one day I got a phone call come in, both the pastors were away and someone desperately wanted to meet up. Uh, this was a man who, who worked full-time in IT, but his hobby was to, to play the stock market, as he called it. And he came in, and uh, he, he met up with me. We, we spent some time praying, and he shared with me that the night before that, he had made an investment that within 24 hours had lost him $50,000. Now, I was going through Bible college at the time, and I wasn't sure what $50,000 was let alone the idea of losing $50,000 in one night. Uh, The company had tanked. There was absolutely no way that this guy could uh, recoup his losses from from that source. I started asking questions how this would impact his his family, his housing situation, all of those things. And and his response to these questions stunned me in a few ways. First of all, he said that that money was just play money. It was an astounding thing to say. I was just... How could that be play money? It was more than I was earning in a year. I had no idea that he'd been so successful in what he called his hobby, just playing the stock market. And then he said something which has stuck with me ever since. I do share this illustration of this man with his permission. He said that the impact that this would have was going to be positive for him. Now, I was still trying to get my head around how this had all come to be, but he said, this is actually a positive thing for me. He said the night before he, he hadn't slept, basically all those stages of grief he'd gone through in, in one night of absolute roller coaster emotions. And he realised in the midst of all of that that there was a hopefulness, a, a hopefulness moving forward. Yes, he, he wasn't financially debilitated, it was throwaway money for him, but he realised that he'd been so focused on what he could get for himself that he had lost sight of spiritual matters. He hadn't been attending uh, Bible studies. His attendance at church had been progressively decreasing. And he realised that he wasn't leading his family well. He wasn't doing devotions with his family. This loss, as sharp and sudden as it was, made him realise that he needed to to move away from those pursuits as his main goal and contribute more to to God and to, to care for his spiritual growth as well as the spiritual growth of people around him. Now, I share that story again with that man's permission because what we would consider loss resulted in gain. His spiritual vitality was amazing after this and he did have a long way to go. There were all sorts of temptations he worked through but it really did result in incredible gain for him. Now, we've read 3 verses 1 to 11 of the book of Philippians this morning. Paul moves from... Uh, moves into discussing what Frank Thielman in his commentary refers to as some of the most profound theological themes in the New Testament. We, we, we see a similar attitude from Paul coming through here where gain can be, or loss can be gain. An attitude that is resultant of the depth of knowledge and love that he has for God. And, and he lays that out for us here and it should have a huge impact on the Christian's life. Now, before we quite dive into those things, just one more brief thing. Paul takes us on a really rich journey. He's taken us on a journey through the first few chapters of Philippians to get us to this point. And we've seen both the rich 
intricacies of theology that he puts forward, also coupled with this beautiful practical care that he has for the church in Philippi. Uh, last week, chapters uh, 2, verses 19 to 30, which we looked at, where we see so much theology there, it really is Paul's practical concern. It should be the same for us as well. We should be practically minded people caring for one another, but it should never come at the expense of a depth of theology, a depth of knowing and understanding God as best as we possibly can. Paul is it's almost pure theology, but its practical implications are just so evident this morning. So diving properly into the passage this morning. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, a few interesting things to note there. We've seen through Philippians a number of times that Paul wants people not just to be happy but joyful. Uh, we, we know that happy is a, a circumstantial thing. Circumstances change. Happiness can be lost. Joy is a state of contentment with knowing who we are in the Lord. Uh, rejoicing is the expression of that, but he's never actually said what we rejoice in. He said rejoice a number of times. It's the first time he says to rejoice in the Lord. Really makes it clear who and what we rejoice in through in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. As we have seen so many times, both in this series as well as day-to-day life and pretty much any other book of the Bible that we look at, particularly as we've just come out of a series on 1 Samuel, we know that life isn't going to be easy. For, for the person who loves and follows God, there will be opposition. And, and Jesus Christ himself tells us that in John 15. But while it's not always easy, there is a true, lasting joy be found in Christ. Our unity with him, our unity with brothers and sisters in him is incredible. And joys come up so often. Rejoicing and joy have come up so often in Philippians. Chapter 2 verses 5 to 18 finish with an admonition to, to find joy. 2 verses 19 to 30 finish with an admonition to find joy. And we start this section with this command to to find joy, to rejoice in the Lord. And that's something we really have to keep in mind. Because Paul not only discusses rich, beautiful theology of God, he discusses opposition to the gospel's advance. He talks about that in this section today. The the back end of verse 1 where Paul says, it's not tedious for me to write these things to you. It's safe for you. It's safe for you because there are dangers facing the church in Philippi. There are dangers facing the church today. He he leads us here, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord, preparing us for the dangers and revealing the dangers. It does not undo rejoicing in the Lord. So verse 1 leads us into what we see from verses uh, 2 to 6. And it really does continue all the way through to verse chapter 4, verse 1, this, this whole section, but we've broken it up to make it manageable. The way it all stitches together is quite incredible, though. There is an urgent need for the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord, because when they rejoice in the Lord, they are recognising his goodness, his grace, his mercy, which puts them in good stead when the opposition comes. They are under attack spiritually. True teachings of the gospel are being challenged in Philippi. Now, Paul doesn't identify here for us the group that is attacking the church in Philippi. 
uh, we, we see in Galatians, Paul talks about the circumcision party. Uh, they're called out almost by name there, by uh, evidences of what they're uh, teaching and, and saying. He doesn't say exactly who is threatening to undo the, the gospel here or is threatening to challenge these gospel truths. You can't undo the gospel. They're threatening to challenge the gospel taking root in the heart of people. But what we do see through here is a context that allows us to understand that most likely that the people causing problems here, uh, attacking the bride of Christ in Philippi, uh, are Judaizers. Now, why do I say that? Well, we look at verses 2 to 6, there are a number of things that come out to give us evidence of this. He, he talks about mutilation. It also follows on immediately to talk about circumcision, a contrast between the two. Now, when Paul says circumcision in verse 3, he's talking about a spiritual one. Uh, mutilation in verse 2 is a problem. He's talking about those who insist that if you want to be part of God's covenant community, you must be circumcised. These people are assigning a spiritual significance to circumcision that is no longer there since Christ's death and resurrection. Colossians chapter 2 makes it clear that circumcision has been replaced with baptism. And there are many, many implications of that. And the, the symbolism changes according to the new covenant which we have in Christ. But to say that you must be circumcised is simply to encourage harming a part of the body for no reason while pretending that there is a good reason for it. More reason that these guys are likely Judaizers is that Paul refers back to his own Jewish heritage. These guys say, you have to have these things. Look at my heritage. Look at my upbringing. I am a Benjaminite. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Pharisee. I've got all the boxes ticked. And he wouldn't bring that out unless he was countering a very particular point of view. He's challenging them. Now, that's some very broad brushstrokes of the first six verses, but we do that to understand why Paul is writing this, who he is defending against. So if we zoom in a bit more, Paul's warning here for the church in Philippi is very serious. And he doesn't hold any punches in calling these people out. He calls them, in verse 2, dogs, evil workers and mutilators. Not the sort of thing you want written down on your character reference, is it? What do you think of this guy? He's a dog, he's an evil worker and he's a mutilator. Probably not going to go down very well. But this is how Paul talks about these people. They're not the sort of people that you'd want to hang out with and they're not the sort of people that you would want promoting falsehoods within the church. This is a very serious threat that must be taken seriously. They're described as dogs, presumably because, like a wild dog, they'll force themselves into a situation where they don't belong. They're almost rabid in their behaviour. They will just fight over that bone to, until they get it or until something very serious stops them. They're, they're workers of evil because we find truth, life, salvation from sin in one place, the gospel of God. We find it in Jesus Christ. To preach against that which these guys are going is to, to convolute the life-saving message of the gospel. It is to deny it. It is to reject it. And it is to tell others, you should reject this life as well. And there is no other life. They are evil workers. It's a spiritual equivalent 
of a nurse or a doctor deliberately kinking an IV cord. An IV line, Anna would pull me up on that. It's a deliberate act against something which brings health and life and vitality. Now, I do want to put a little bit of a caveat here. Because we can take this and become very tribalistic. Anyone who, who walks in the door, tries to have fellowship with us, must hold to exactly the same theology as us. Now, I'm not sure about you, but have you ever met anyone who you 100% agree with every single point of doctrine with? I haven't. But there are some things that cannot be denied. We could take it further and say anybody who has used drugs or more broadly uh, has substance-based issues or anything like that cannot come in here. I hope and pray that we would still hold out the grace of God to them. That does not mean that we allow for these things to take over in the church. The way that Paul is writing here is that these people have been present, they have heard the gospel, they have had chances to respond to the gospel for an extended period of time and all they have done is continue to cause troubles. Timothy talks about the divisive person in the church needing to be cast out. These people fall into that category. They've been around for a while. The time has come for the Philippians to put some distance in place. It's important for them to do this. And there is a need for distance because Paul speaks of a significant theological truth in verse 3. As we are of the circumcision, so he's writing to a Gentile church, but he includes them in referring to them as also being part of the, the true circumcision with him, which we can touch on a little bit soon. I don't want to steal my thunder for later on. But we who hold to salvation by grace through faith, trusting only in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Only those of us who do that can worship in spirit and truth. Only we can worship God in the Spirit. People who deny these fundamental truths of God cannot worship God in the Spirit. It is simply impossible. And I say that, that's not just a PRC thing. I believe that as a denomination we do worship in the Spirit. But there are also many outside of our denomination who, who do believe these core things. Uh, yesterday and again tomorrow I'm a, a delegate for our denomination to the, the Westminster Presbyterian Church's National Assembly. They worship in spirit. They, they hold to these truths. And there are, again, many, many others who hold to these fundamental truths of God. But for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, again, they cannot worship in spirit and truth. Now, I know that today we don't like using language that sounds like us versus them. It's frowned upon, but there are spiritual realities that it's, we have to acknowledge, and it's no good pretending otherwise. And Paul continues. He continues here discussing what, what we might call his, his supreme Hebrewness, his supreme Hebrew upbringing. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's circumcised on the eighth day, and again he, he talks about us, uh, we, he and the Philippians, mostly Gentiles, have been circumcised. Yeah, they had undergone a true circumcision. 
Presumably, the one of the heart that is spoken about so often in the Old Testament rather than purely a physical one. That was symbolic of a spiritual truth, the spiritual work of God in the life of his people, just like baptism today is reflective. It's the outward sign of the inward work of God or the promise of God to work. We see in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, that God's primary concern is with the human heart in a spiritual sense and not our physical features. We go back to this list. He continues on. So he's from Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. The boxes are being ticked here. He's got it all. He continues, as to the Lord, he's a Pharisee. Not in the way we might say someone today is a a law-loving, fun-hating person. He's a Pharisee in the sense that he knew the Jewish law, he knew the Torah, he knew the Old Testament, he knew it back to front. And we know that he didn't act accordingly in his actions, but he, he knew it back to front. He knew the law. He had a passion for the law. So maybe he wouldn't have been the funnest guy at a party. But in terms of what these guys say you have to have to, to be saved, these Judaizers say you have to have these things to be saved, I've got it. His opponents are saying, you must have circumcision, you must be brought into Israel, you must have all of these things if you want to be saved. Paul has it and he says, all the fleshly advantages you could ask for are not what matters. Look at the end of verse 3. We rejoice in Christ Jesus as Lord and have no confidence in the flesh. And really that is all these other things that the Judaizers say you must have are. They are things of the flesh. They're things of the flesh. They are so focused on the flesh that it's actually quite clever of Paul to use the flesh to counter their arguments, isn't it? You must have these earthly things in place to be saved. And Paul says no, because they are just earthly things. They are not spiritual in the way that they're being presented here. Not only does it draw to mind that the short-term, spiritually lacking focus of the Judaizers It also begins to draw into focus the scope or lack of scope of their arguments and point Christians more fully to God. And we do face the same things today. Now, I'm not sure if you've had any Judaizers knock on your door lately. I've been here for a bit over almost three, two and a half years. I can't remember any coming into the church here. But we face the same types of opposition, don't we? People who say that your bank account is what matters. The size of your house. Having a dog. I'm sorry to the cat people, but I've never heard anyone say that a cat makes you happier as a sign of success, and I agree with them. But there's so many things that people say, you must have this to succeed. You must have this, have any hope of joy. You must have this to have anything resembling a good life. And Paul's saying, no, 
We live in a world where the Judaizers, just like the world we live in today, are basically saying, you've got to help yourself before anyone else can help you. Now, in and of themselves, none of those things that we we talk about are inherently evil. There are places for circumcisions for medical reasons. Houses are a great thing because they protect us from the elements. Money. If our love of money is what's in our hearts, love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is not the root of all evil. Love of money is the root of all evil. Paul talks to Timothy and to Timothy about ways in which money can and should be used for God's glory. Again, you'll probably figure out what I think about cats, but dogs are man's best friend. But, but in the end, that none of these things help us where it matters the most. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And not just once. Once would be enough, but we have all done this more than once. We have accrued a debt against God, and none of these earthly, fleshly things can help to dig our way out of that debt. We cannot pay it off with these things. The reality is we need Christ. This is why Paul says we rejoice in Christ. He must be our focus, not these other things. And that is a hard truth. Because when we think about that throughout the week, we know how easy it is to focus on all those other things. But we are to have Christ in mind. Paul counters the Judaizers in verses 2 to 6. After telling the church to to rejoice in verse 1, and then he continues to to launch our minds towards Christ in verses 7 to 11. Verse 7 is such a beautiful verse. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. All these things that people say you must have for your advantage in life, Paul sees them as disadvantageous. And they are well worth losing if it means Paul has Christ. In verses 8 to 11, he basically explores that by reversing the logic that he used in verses 2 to 6. Uh, Peter spoke in a prayer meeting this morning about the negative of a photo. And in some ways, that's the, the negative we see in verses 2 to 6. It's the opposite of what it is. Now we see the positive coming through here. Before we look at the positive, I just want to say, before you go burning down your houses, giving away your dogs and emptying your bank accounts, Paul is not saying that those things are inherently evil. Now, I know I keep saying that sort of thing. What Paul is highlighting is that his attitude towards them, his attitude towards his upbringing, just that attitude towards our possessions can be what is evil. Paul was almost using his upbringing before he had that amazing, mind-blowing, sight 
removing encounter with God on the road to Damascus, where, where he, he, he thought that because of those things, he and God were equal partners in his justification. That he was contributing just as much as God because of these things. The moment Paul was saved, he, he realised that this was certainly not the case. God alone has saved him. Paul, as a man who knew the Old Testament back to front, refers to it now with how he talks about knowing God or having this knowledge of God, which is why we read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 40. If you were to flick, particularly in there, 31, verse 34, we see it come through. Also, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 20, has this theme of knowing God come through here. And it's an acknowledgement of what Theoman calls God's great act of deliverance in Christ. And there's also Paul's submission to Christ's lordship. Moved by the Spirit, Paul has acknowledged God's great act of deliverance and he has submitted to Christ's lordship. He has gained Christ. You see those things that Paul goes on to talk about there. Righteousness. Resurrection. Those are things to rejoice in. These mean that when Paul stands before the judgment seat of God, because Paul is in Christ, Christ's blood, Christ's righteousness will cover Paul. It is a perfect covering from the wrath of God. It is a perfect propitiation, the perfect turning away of the wrath of God because of the work that Christ did. This is far better than whatever civ-like righteousness Paul could attain by being a good Hebrew fellow or that we could have by not breaking the, the Australian laws or any of those sorts of things. The righteousness of Christ is a lasting, eternal righteousness. And that righteousness that Paul has in Christ, that is a righteousness that every single believer has attributed to them as well. The work of Christ is finished. He paid the price. That righteousness is applied to us the moment that we are saved from sin. See, in this section where Paul is arguing against buffheads who argue against the gospel of life, you might wonder why Paul says twice to rejoice in the Lord. He says to rejoice in the Lord because while we do live with those pressures, from people who tell us that anything other than God are what matters. 
While we often have those discussions and feel those pressures and the weight of those things are heavy and it's not fun, we are the redeemed people of God. We are saved. We are sinners who have been amazingly being declared just before the throne of God because of what Christ did for us. The things that Paul deals with here, that the Philippian church deal with, the things that that we deal with in our lives as well, are tricky. But never take your eyes away from Christ. We are to take a page from Paul's book. And we should be willing to give it all for the one who gave it all. Because of these things, we aren't just people who are happy for a short period of time when we've heard a good joke, when something went well at work. We are rejoicing, joyful people who are God's forever. We truly are a blessed people. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we have been able to see in it today. And we know that there is simply so much more that we could dive into there. Each one of those verses, every sentence there is one which is just so rich and we could just park ourselves in for extended periods of time. We pray, O God, that we would not walk out of here and neglect those wonderful truths that you have revealed to us in your word today, but that we might continue to seek them out, that we might be diligent in our searching scripture, that we might see how amazing you are and have our lives continually transformed by the inworking of your spirit. Help us to trust you and you alone and help us to realise that when we lose those things the world considers to be the the be-all and end-all, we have gained you and we can rejoice in your goodness to us. Amen.